Hi everyone, Benjamin Smith here, pastor of Revealing Truth Ministries, Wesley Chapel. You know, God is always speaking good things to us and he has a word for you today, we are sure of it. Take some time out to listen and we'll be back as soon as we're done. God bless you. All right, family, let's do this. Let's pray. God, I thank you for each and every person here. We never take it for granted, this opportunity that we have to come and minister together. I pray that you give me your inner wisdom to speak life into each and every person. I also pray that each and every person will get something out of the word today that they can use and make their lives better. God, not just years from now or months from now or weeks from now, not even days from now. Our prayer is that they will be able to use this message and make their lives better immediately. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Lift your Bibles up, please, and say this confession. Say, this is my Bible. I can be what it says I can be. I can do what it says I can do. I can have what it says I can have. Every verse is God-breathed, and I aim to live by every word. It is essential to my faith foundation and works to change me from the inside out into the person God has created me to be. That is why I shall never let it go. It is reliable. It is the truth. It is divine. It is the word of God and shall forever be to me my Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. As you know, we are on the series here at Wesley Chapel, Contend. And the references that we've been bringing, the ones that anchor us, are out of the book of Jude. The book of Jude just has one book, so we, can, we call it Jude chapter 1. We have been talking about a single verse, that is Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Are there more insights that we can get from all of Jude? Absolutely. But we have locked in on verse 3. That's where we have found our resting place. Jude 1, verse 3, in the King James Version, reads this way. It says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exert you that ye should, that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Easy to read version. Dear friends, I wanted very much to write to you about the salvation we all share together, but I felt the need to write to you about something else. I want to encourage you to fight hard for the faith that God gave his holy people. God gave this faith once, and it is good for all time. When we were last together, I introduced a concept. And that concept is the open door perspective. Notice the image in front of you. Whenever you are in your trouble, whenever you are in a situation and a door opens up in the middle of your situation, that door is not necessarily meant to be your door of escape. You can use it as one most of the time, but escaping out that door is not necessarily the best kingdom action to take. We took a look at Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. 
And while those two men were in jail after having been beaten black and blue and just badly mistreated, God miraculously opened the jailhouse doors, broke them free from their chains, and you would think, they're thinking, hey, this is an open door of escape, but they didn't take that door of escape. They stayed there in their trouble. And by them saying they're in their trouble, guess what? The jailer and his family were able to enter in through that door and learn about the gospel. Similarly, we talked about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, knowing that the work he had to do was weighty and it was painful and it was a lot for one person to carry, even though he had the opportunity to escape from that scenario and save himself, he elected to stay in his trouble and endure the cross. By him staying in his trouble and enduring the cross, it gave an opportunity who, from, for all of mankind to enter into that same, through that same door and learn about the gospel. In both cases, Paul and Silas and Jesus, the fact that these men stayed in their trouble and didn't exit that door, did what? It created an opportunity for someone else to come in through that same door and have a relationship with God. That is the open door perspective. When you look at a door that opens in your life, from your view, it could be an exit. It can be an escape. But for somebody else, it could be an entry. It's all a matter of perspective. We're going to continue talking about open doors today, but we're going to talk about open doors in a very specific context with a very narrow focus. That context is the open door of compromise. Say compromise. Mm. The open door of compromise. We are well aware, family, that God can open a door. And when he opens that door, guess what? That door can be your escape. Yes, it can. But it also could be a door that's open and you're supposed to stay, stay put where you are and not escape. And God's idea, his plan, is for someone else to enter that door from the other side, right in the middle of your situation, and have their lives changed for the better by being introduced to a powerful, living, and breathing example of the gospel. And in case you were wondering, contender, that living, breathing, powerful example of the gospel is you. Or it should be you. Yes, God can open a door in the middle of your issue. He can open a door of escape. He can open a door that's good for both of those purposes. But we don't want to be ignorant to the fact that the devil can open doors too. God is not the only one that can open a door. The problem is that when the devil opens the door, that door is attached to a bit of trickery. It may look like a true, honest door of escape. But what it really is, is a gateway to more destruction. His is the open door of compromise. 
let's jump off into this discussion a little deeper by looking at 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is, you can show this later. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is, go back one. Now go back to the door. Perfect. Thank you. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the account of David and Bathsheba. But we're not going to focus on David and Bathsheba. We're going to focus on Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who is also a soldier in David's army. The way the story goes, just to sum it up before we start reading in verse 6, it goes like this. David's sitting up in his house one day. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He lusts after her. He has his men go get her. He lays with her, and he gets her pregnant. To cover it up, he comes with a plan. He says, I'm going to get Uriah off the battlefield, and I'm going to give him the opportunity to come and spend some time with his wife. The man been on the battlefield. I'm sure he would appreciate a little one-on-one -on -one time, a little time to, you know, relate with his boo. So he, 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 he goes and, and he starts his plan. The plan, though, in his mind, has a little bit of trickery to it. Because what he's thinking is that at some point in time, Bathsheba going to have a baby bump. At some point in time, she's going to start to show. And if I can get this man to hook up with his wife for a brief, you know, get away from battle, then when the baby bumps show up, people will think back on this time and say, well, you know what? That must be Uriah's baby because remember that time he came home for the war and nobody would think that it's David's baby or somebody else's baby. It's a twisted plan for sure. But that's the plan. And we jump into it in verse 6. Notice. We're in the voice translation of the Bible most of today, for the most part. 2 Samuel 11, verses 6 through 8. So David sent a message to his general, Jacob. David said, send me Uriah, Joab. He says, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah back to David. There he was, taken in front of the king, and David asked how Joab was doing, how the army was getting along, and how the campaign is progressing. Now, he's just making small talk. He's just setting the scene so he really think he really cares about what's going on. When they finished discussing the news of the, from the front, David suggested that Uriah go to his own house to clean up, relax, and visit his wife. David says, since I've called you back here, you know, just hypothetically, just by happenstance, you happen to be here, why don't you go ahead, why don't you go down to your house? David sent a gift after him when he left. Now, let's pause right there because I want you to know something about that gift. The Bible doesn't say what kind of gift he sent. The Bible gives no details. But let me tell you what I believe because we can surmise what he sent. I'm going to tell you what I believe. You know what I believe the gift was? It was a set it off kit. Oh yeah, you know what I'm talking about? A set it off kit. 
David got on whatever during his time was Amazon Prime, you know, Camazon Prime or whatever it was. He went in there and he, he, he got up there and he identified different things and he picked out everything that he thought would for sure ignite passion between Uriah and Bathsheba. Oh, yeah. A set it off kit. And you know what I think the kit had in it? It had, it had the candles in it. It had the candy in it. It had the wine in it. It had the flowers in it. It had the, it had the blanket in it. He, he may have got on and did and ordered some from Hebrew Eats, sent a meal over there. You know, he could have did all that stuff. And, and he, he made sure that he sent over there a set it off kit because he wanted to make sure that when Uriah walked in that house and he looked at his wife and that kit was there, that there would be fireworks up in that address. Why? Because that meets his plan. It just said he, he, when he left, David sent a gift after him. You know David's plan. That gift was to set it off. It was to set it off. That's what it was. But let's, let's, let's take this further. Next image, please. Picking it back up. David said... Since I've called you back here, why don't you, why don't you go down to your house? David sent a gift after him when he left. But Uriah, mm, he didn't, he's not going to fall for this. He's not doing this. But Uriah did not go down to his own house. Instead, he spent the night at the entrance of the palace with all the king's servants. The servant said to David, Uriah didn't go home last night. <laughs> That's how they said that. David said to Uriah, first, you know, the first thing David said, what? But then he said, they don't have that in there, but David said, what? Then David went to Uriah and he said, you've just come home from a long trip. Why don't you spend the night in your own house? Look, look, listen to Uriah. The people of Israel and Judah and the covenant chest of the Lord are in the tents. My general Joab and the king's other servants are sleeping in the open fields. Do you think I would go to my home to eat and drink and sleep with my wife while everyone else suffers? As you live, good king, I will not do such a thing. <laughs> Uriah has been presented with an open door of compromise, but he refuses to walk through that door. He refuses to go. And think about this now. This man is being offered the opportunity to, if, if only for a moment, get an escape from the unpleasantries of battle. But he refuses. He refuses to walk through that door of compromise. In Uriah's mind, he refuses to only think about himself. He refuses to do anything that's going to separate himself from the people who are 
in the battle with him. He refuses to walk through that door of compromise because why? He has values and he has commitment and he has devotion to the people that are out there fighting with him. And he would rather stay with them and fight until everybody can come home and relax than to compromise and just think about himself. Uriah declines David's offer. But family, bringing it back to our world right now, how many fathers have walked through that door of compromise? Let me share what I mean. Here's a plausible scenario. A man meets a woman and they get married. <clears throat> Ultimately, they have children, they have a family. As time passes, this man has it in his mind that the weight of being family man, in his view, is too heavy. He observes an opportunity for escape, an open door of compromise. And he walks through that door, he crosses that threshold, hear me clearly, to make life easy on himself. He has just walked through the door of compromise because he took an action to make life easier on himself and he left his family to fight life's battle alone. Yeah. He walked through the door of compromise, leaving his family on the battlefield of life alone, leaving them without a strong male covering leaving the children without a male role model, leaving the children without a male guide, leaving the wife, leaving the mother without physical support, leaving her without mental support, leaving her without emotional support, leaving her without financial support, leaving her when he had committed and made a vow to be devoted to her for better or for worse. But it seems like he couldn't handle the worse. He was only there for the better. And for completeness, Let's be, let's be completely honest with this thing. It's, it's, it's not just fathers. Mothers have walked through that door too. I, I would be willing to bet at lower numbers. <laughs> but mothers have walked through that door too. The bottom line is it doesn't matter if it's he or she, they accepted a compromise. When they walked through that door, they accepted a compromise. And moreover, if that person who accepted that compromise is a professed believer, 
the action that they took in quote-unquote escaping for themselves that potentially taints the gospel in the hearts and the minds of the people they left behind. I'm not saying that the negative impression on the gospel is true, but it's very much true in the minds of the people that he hurt or in the minds of the people that she hurt. Because they saw this Christian as being a reflection of God. At that moment, at that particular time, that person is no longer contending for the faith. They have accepted the devil's trickery and allowed him to use them to put a blemish on the gospel. Yeah. And let's 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 not stop there, because it's not even a matter of understanding why the person took the compromise. It's not about the why. Think about Uriah. This man is given an offer from the king to spend time. Some well deserving ain't had in a minute time with not a random woman, but his wife. He said no. If he had said yes, nobody would have given him any, any, any stuff about it. Why? Because it's his wife. I understand why he did what he did. I understand. I get it. It's the man's wife. The man's been on the battlefield all this time. Hey, the man's going to go see his wife. And people would have said that he was justified. The invitation came from the king. But it's not about entering that door being justifiable. It's not about that at all. It's about the fact that the person took a selfish act to make things easier on themselves while leaving their loved ones in life to fight the battle alone. That's a compromise. That's a punk behind move. It doesn't matter the why. It only matters that you did when we're talking about compromise. Because the reason was to make it easier on yourself. Let's look at another example. In Genesis chapter 29, 39, thank you. Genesis 39. The image is going to come up before you. but. Just to give you some context here, it's about Joseph, Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife. You know the story of Joseph. He's, he, he, you know, he had a dream. And when he had his dream, what happened? His family, his brothers and daddy, and them was like, man, you crazy. You think we're going to bow down to you? That ain't going to happen. Now, the Bible does say his father did consider it, but his brothers, they weren't having it at all. They come up with this, this little plan at some point in time. They put this man in the pit, and eventually they sell him off to sl in slavery, and he goes to Potiphar's house. 
when he gets to Potiphar's house, though, he is such a good servant. He is such a good example of, I wish all the people that work for me was like you. He is such a good example. Potiphar says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put you in charge of everything. Look at in verse 6, in the voice translation. Genesis 39, verse 6. Nope, go back in the easy to read. My, 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 my apologies. Easy to read. Thank you. The easy to read version says this. So Potiphar allowed Joseph to take responsibility for everything in the house. Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything except deciding what to eat. Joseph was a very handsome, good looking man. Now let's pause right here because there is a reason why I put why I put this here. Easy to read is, as it says, easy to read. That's simple, right? And the way they put it in here. I went through that and I'm I'm accustomed when I when I read the Bible and study, I, I, I study out of probably at least five versions at a time. And I'm, I always kind of, you know, you pick up little glimpses of the way something, so another translation says it. You go, huh, I like that better. And, and here, I, I thought the easy to read kind of watered down what we're getting at here. So let's pick this up again in the voice. Notice, verse 6, Potiphar entrusted everything to the care of Joseph with him in charge Potiphar had no concern about anything except for his private affairs, such as the food he chose to eat. Now, Joseph was a, here we go, family say well-built, good-looking, young man. Now, let's rest there for a minute. The voice translation tells me that Joe, Joe boy, Joseph, was well built. That means he was fine. I think it's F-O-I-N-E, fine. That means he was built up and curved in all the right places. The Bible says he was good looking. That means he was handsome. That means that when he walked down the street next turn, it meant that when you looked at him, you didn't mind looking at him for a minute. Made the lady swoon. The Bible said a boy was well built and good looking. But it didn't stop there. He was young. That meant he was virile. That meant he had stamina. That meant he had energy. That meant he was the energizer bunny on steroids. It meant he was young. What am I trying to say? The Bible is saying that Joseph was a big piece of eye candy. And let me tell you, mama got a sweet tooth. And by mama, I mean Potiphar's wife. He wasn't he was, he was just handsome and good looking. He was a fine piece of Hebrew. Look at what you're looking at. God is good. He don't make no junk. 
I need that on my plate. That's what that boy was. He wasn't just anybody. You know how you do. I've been, I've been in, I've been in the movies with, you know, my wife would take me to like a movie sometime where it's, you know, it's like a ladies' movie, and so I'm in there, you know, and you got a couple dudes in there too that, you know, it's not that the movie was good, but you could tell we all was asked to come. So we, you know, ain't nobody shooting, ain't nothing blowing up, but we was asked to come, and it's, it, it's not that the movie's not good, but. Here's what I'm getting at. This man is fine. And so here's what I'm getting at. We all there sitting there and eating the popcorn or drinking icy, whatever you get, you know, like my daughter puts like chocolate in her popcorn and shakes it up and all this kind of stuff. So we're there in the movie. And then he comes on the screen. Why he got to have his shirt off? I don't know. Why he got to be oiled down and glistening? I don't know. You, Hey, man, you are, why you oiled up, brother? You in it? Do, does this scene require oil? <laughs> but he comes on the screen, hasn't said a word yet, but his presence is speaking volumes. The camera brings him up on the screen and across the sea of the theater, you hear stuff like, uh. Girl, my lord, hey, okay, across the whole theater. And to be completely honest, as a dude, you got to say, oh, that boy bad right there. I can see why everybody making them sound. The voice says, now, now Joseph wasn't just anybody. He was a well-built, good-looking young man. But go ahead. <laughs> Going through verse 9, it says, Now Joseph was a well-built, good-looking young man. This is the voice. After a while, his master's wife began watching him, and she tried to seduce him. The wife says, come sleep with me. But Joseph refused. Joseph said to her, look, please don't take offense. But with me in charge, my master has no concerns for anything that goes on in his house. He has trusted me with everything he has. He hasn't treated me like I am any less than he is. And he hasn't kept anything from me except, of course, you because you are his wife. Why would I do something so clearly wrong and sin so blatantly against God? Joseph is before an open door of compromise. And although nobody is there to make sure he do the right thing, although his body may say, okay, 
although there is nobody else to see if he says yes, he refuses to do something that is so clearly wrong. He refuses to do something that is a sin. He refuses to do anything because even though there's nobody else, quote unquote, there looking at him, he knows God is always there and he refuses to do anything so blatantly against God. He refuses to walk through that open door of compromise. But like I said, mama got a sweet tooth. So she's persistent. Look at the next one. Picking up at verse 10. Although she pursued him day after day, so she didn't stop just one time. And keep in mind, she is not just any woman. She is Potiphar's wife. So in the whole scheme of where they are, she also is a woman with power. Although she pursued him day after day, Joseph would not consent to sleep with her and refused to be alone with her, alone with her. One day, however, he went into the house to do his work while no one else was in the house except, you know, she was there. No one else was in the house. She grabbed him by his clothes and tried again to seduce him. Potiphar's wife said, come sleep with me. But Joseph... He took some very specific steps here, family. He ran outside away from her as fast as he could, leaving her holding his clothes in her hand. He didn't sit there and say, oh, leave me alone, stop. I didn't tell you leave me alone. Why you keep, you know, you his wife, I stop. He didn't linger in compromise. He knew it was a sin. He knew it was clearly wrong. He knew it was against God. That boy ran. He ran away. And he didn't tippy-toe and trot. He made an instant decision, and he ran away as fast as he could. He didn't play with compromise. Joseph did not walk through that door of compromise. He refused. Bring it back to our day, though. How many husbands and wives, or boyfriends and girlfriends for that matter, have walked through that door? Once again, you know the plausible scenario. The person looks into their partner's eyes and lets them know, I only have eyes for you. I'm only thinking of you. My heart is only of you. Then at some point in time, the devil opens that door. And then on the other side of that threshold, he puts the very type of well-built, good-looking bait on the other side. And that person selfishly walks through 
an act that leaves a dent in the heart of the person they said they loved. An act that leaves that person who is re remaining hurt and lingering behind asking why. An act that has that person asking, what's wrong with me? An act that has that person asking, what did I do wrong? An act that has that person asking the question, what could I have done better? An act that has that person asking, what does that person have to offer that I don't have to offer? An act that leaves that person reeling emotionally, and get this, depleted of trust. Depleted of trust. The bottom line is they took a compromise. And in taking that compromise, they fall right into the devil's hands. When they took that compromise, they probably never ever thought that, especially if they are a professed believer, that when you cross that threshold, your action potentially taints that person's view of the gospel. The persons that you left behind, the person that you left behind, the person that you hurt. Why? Because when they looked at you, because you said you were Christian, not that the image of the, of the gospel is actually true, but guess what? They saw you as a reflection of God. And when you did what you did, that tainted his image in their eyes. Well, I, you know, I, I, you know, I do, I still, I do love you. It's, I, I, I did it, but I do, I, I do love you. You know the saying. It came out back in, in the 90s. If you love me like you say you love me, love would have bought your home last night. It's not the fact that you can try to cobble up reasons to justify why you did what you did. The bottom line is you took the compromise. It's the open door of compromise. The devil opens it for you. Hmm. And he gets you to walk through. Let's look at one more. Now, let me, let me set it up for you. Because we're going to go here to 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about David. And in talking about, and in talking about David... I want you to know that you know the story of David. He killed Goliath. He got real popular. Saul thought he was his boy. He's like, yeah, you're my man. You know what? He let him marry his daughter. He's like, hey, you know, David is great until David's popularity was growing faster than his. Saul's like, oh, we got to end this. This guy is a threat to my throne. So what does he do? He, he ends up starting to try to kill David. 
He's after him. I mean, he wants him. He wants him gone. And you know what? In the Bible, it shows at least two clear times where David had the opportunity to kill Saul first. But he didn't take it. Notice. Let's read this in the voice translation. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And here is, the, here, is, here is one of the first times. It reads this way. Starting in verse 1, 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 4. After Saul had returned from chasing the Philistines, he was told that David had gone to the wilderness of Engedi. He gathered 3,000 hardened, hardened fighting men from across Israel and sought David in the vicinity of the rocks of the wild, of rocks of the wild goats. Of wild goats, that's interesting. When he came to sleep, when he came to the sheep shelters beside the road, a cave was there, and Saul went inside to relieve himself. He went to use the bathroom. Unguarded, because you don't take nobody wish you use the bathroom. So he ain't take no guards with him. You know, he got to just go handle his business. So unguarded, he was especially vulnerable to attack. Now, keep in mind, it's, since we're talking about vulnerable to attack, he was doing some serious business. He wasn't just, you know, doing number one. He was, he was handling, he was handling, that, I mean, think about it. That's why he got to be, he got to be consumed with what he's doing. That's the way I read it. Unguarded, he was especially vulnerable to attack. Now, Saul didn't know it, but David and his men were hiding in the recesses of that very cave. David's guards thought it was the perfect time to strike. His guards said to David, this must be the very day the eternal one told you about. Watch, I'll give your enemy to you and you will do whatever you please with him. David crept forward quietly and moved in so close that he was able to cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, David doesn't kill him here, though. As a matter of fact, the Bible goes on to say, if you were to continue to read, that not only does David not kill him, but his boy, David's boy, was like, you crazy? He right there. We got to do him in, Dave. But David refused to let him, to let his men harm him. Look at another chance, another time. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verses 7 through 11 in the voice. It reads like this. So David and Abishai snuck into the encampment under the cover of darkness, and at last they found Saul sleeping. Look, he's sleeping. In the middle of the camp, his spear stuck in the ground near his head, with Abner and the other soldiers lying around him sleep. Abishai said to David, this is your chance. God has placed your enemy at your mercy. Let me take his spear and pin him to the ground. I only need one try. Let me take his spear. He's sleeping. Just I, 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 can, I can name that tune in one note. I can get it. David says, no, don't kill him. Who can legitimately strike the eternal's anointed king without consequence? Remember, Saul's still officially king right now. As the eternal one lives, his time will come. The eternal will strike him down. Either he will die 
or he will go into battle one day and be slain. God forbid I would be the one to harm the Eternal's anointed king. But please take his spear next to his head and that water jug and let's go. <laughs> In both instances, I want you to know something. Saul never knew David was there. He never knew David was there. Say this with me. David had, David had the chance, the chance to, kill Saul, to kill Saul, but he did not. He did not. <laughs> Let me say that differently to bring it a little closer to us. David had the Saul. Yeah, David had the chance to hurt the very person who wanted to hurt him. David had the chance to, you know, do something wrong to the person who wanted to wrong him. But he didn't. He was standing before an open door of compromise and he didn't take it. But how many of us have walked through that door? How many of us, let's, let me go let this about me real quick. I know in my life, I've had some people that they just seem like they just want to do me wrong. They just seem like they're a thorn in my, in my side. As a matter of fact, something go wrong, investigated enough, and guess who I find at the bottom of, at the root of the problem? <laughs> Them or that person. It's, it's, it's probably happened to you. There's that person out there that that person is just, ugh, just, they don't just get up under your skin. They don't get up under your skin and you dislike them for no reason. You have evidence that justify your dislike. They always seem to be the ones in the middle of stuff that happened to you. They just, they just don't have good for you. Suddenly, one day pops up, and guess what? You have the opportunity to bring a little misfortune their way. You have the opportunity to dish out a little wrong to the person that always seemed to be the person that do you wrong. Oh, yeah. And you walk through that door of compromise. You have the opportunity to hurt the person that wants to hurt you. You have the opportunity to do wrong to the person that wants to do you wrong, and you take that bait. You get them fired from the job. You get them kicked out of school. You get them dismissed from the team. 
they, 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 come, they come your way for whatever reason and they ask you about the clothes they're wearing. How does this look? And you know goodness well, if they go out in public looking like that, they're going to be a laughing stock. That that's the worst thing you've ever seen. That they should never post any pictures with that on. But what do you tell them? It looks good. Yeah, you should wear that. Yeah, you should go out with that. No, those colors go together. And you laugh your tail off when they walk out the door or leave your presence. Mm-hmm. You got the opportunity to do wrong to someone that you know always wants to do you wrong. Can we, can we bring a little, a, a little tighter to, to, to us believers? Can we go ahead and bring some more reality into the walls of the church? You see them getting ready to make a bad business deal or do something really bad with their money. And you sit quietly by and watch them make that bad decision. Let me bring it tighter on you. Because you got the opportunity to do wrong to the person that always do you wrong. You, you sleep with their spouse's payback. Yeah. Yeah. You do it, it's payback. You find out some dirt on them, and you go ahead and, you know, kind of incognito release it on the, on the post, release it on social media. You drench the internet with all AT. You have the opportunity to walk through that door of compromise and you took it. The devil gave you the chance to have some self-justified justice and you took it. And guess what? If you are a professed believer and what you did ever comes to the light, it could taint the image of the gospel in the eyes and in the hearts and the minds of the person that you intended to hurt. And if others find out, it can taint the image of the gospel in their hearts and minds too. Why? Because you, Christian, in their mind, you are a reflection of God. And when you did what you did, when you said what you said, when you took the act that you took, it may not be actually a real taint on the gospel because the gospel is the gospel, but in their minds, it very much tainted the image of God. And when you think about this in totality, in all these cases that we've talked about, all these scenarios, it's not just, you know, the act hurting people. Think about it. If the person doing the act, if the person who walks through that door of compromise, if they really got any God in them at all, they got to feel bad. 
at some point in time, they got to be convicted. Now, not only has the devil messed up somebody else's life because you let him use you to taint somebody's image of the gospel. Now he's got you living in remorse. Got your heart all tied up. Got you looking in the mirror and feeling bad about you. For that one act that you took to walk through that door, he got two for one. He blemished the gospel and he got you screwed up in the head. And if you want to really be real with it, if you take the full ripple effect, if you take the impact on spouses and each child and all the friends and the mom and them and the business associates and the people that you went to high school with and the people that you ministered to today, you didn't told them about God. Now they say this joker don't know nothing about God. He and you take all that and you add all them people up. You easily got the devil over 10 to 1. Because you walk through that door compromised for that one act, he got X to one. All because you fell for it. Whenever he opens a door, that door, it leads to more damage. It's a gateway to more damage. The Bible already tells you he's the father of lies. Family, let's, 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 let's do a quick image sum up of the open door of compromise. When it comes to the open door of compromise, if I haven't said it this, this directly to you, believer, you must avoid it. Never, ever, ever, never, ever, no matter how good whatever on the other side of that threshold looks, never entertain it. Do not be enticed. I don't care how big the payday is supposed to be. I don't care about how curvy she is. I don't care about how her hair flows back. I don't care about how hunky and handsome and fine he is. I don't care about what it's supposed to do in your life down the road, due to your career. I don't care. Don't you ever walk through that door of compromise. It's a trap. Do not fall for it. We're talking about being contenders. And to contend for the faith, faith, one must avoid the open door of compromise. Now I want you to personalize that with me. Say this with me. For me, for me to, contend for the faith, to contend for the faith, I must avoid, I must avoid the, open the open door of compromise. Of compromise. You avoid it. And I mean, and I mean this no matter what your age is. I mean, if you are male, you avoid that door like a grown man. If you are female, you avoid that door like a grown woman. When the open door of compromise comes your way, 
You don't need nobody advice on what to do. You know it's so clearly wrong and clearly a sin, blatantly against God. You avoid it. You run from it as fast as you can. Because if you're going to be a contender, if a contender is what you want to be, you have to avoid the open door of compromise at all cost. Justifiability, if that's the word, is not what we're talking about here. Because when you're talking about that compromise, is you're doing something to make life easier on yourself. And you're leaving other people's hearts and lives as the aftermath of your selfish action. Mm, I love y'all. We'll talk some more later. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you for giving us your word to help us live and to grow. Sometimes we hear it and it causes us to immediately expand and grow. Other times we hear it and it causes us to take inventory, step back, put some things in order, do a little reconstruction, and then move forward. Whatever the case may be, God, we know that you only give us instruction and discipline because you love us. And when you give us your discipline, God, we thank you for it because we know right behind it is your wonderful restoration. The open door of compromise is something that we are going to avoid. We're, we're not those people who leave our loved ones to deal with life alone. We're not those people that are so weak in our flesh that we chase everything the devil brings our way. And we are not those people that live this life pouncing on that chance to have some get back. That's not who you designed us to be. We are made in your image and in your likeness. And the words that we speak and the actions that we take should reflect you. We should be a shining light of what the gospel represents. We shouldn't take part in anything that causes it to have a blemish in the eyes of others. We thank you, God, for giving us the opportunity to get it right. Get it right and move forward in what you have for us to do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, that's what God had to say to us today. We pray that it blessed you. As always, we pray that the word of God blesses you 
not just years from now or months from now or weeks from now, not even days from now, but we pray that you got something out of the message today that would change your life immediately. God bless you and look forward to chatting with you next time.